listeners and welcome to episode 7 of the Rapid Assam podcast. I'm your host Ben Hocker. I uh, got some really good feedback on episode 6 with Diana Blegg. I uh, really appreciate all your comments and feedback so keep them coming. Today's guest is an absolute superstar in the world of mountain biking, specifically the Enduro World Series at the moment. It's just tearing it up. Uh, finished top 20 this year. His name is Josh Carlson. Uh, he's friendly, he's funny, and he's very, very fast on a mountain bike. Uh, he's got a really inspiring story. Overcame some pretty big odds at a, at a young age to continue on with mountain biking and pursue it as a career. So tune in and let us know what you think at the end of the episode. But otherwise, thanks for your time, Josh, and hope you enjoyed Episode 7 of the Rapid Asset Podcast with Josh Carlson and your host, Ben Hucker. Josh Carlson, welcome to episode seven of the Rapid Ascent podcast. Cheers, mate. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. It's good to finally have you on the show. I know this will be a really popular episode with our mountain bike riders and those outside mountain biking as well. Now, you've just wrapped up um, the Enduro World Series, I understand. The the last race was at Zermatt in Switzerland. How did you go throughout the series? Yeah, it was definitely a tough year this year for 2019. We finished up the series in Zermatt. Um, at the end of the very end of September, and man, it was it was a bit of a a year where every round just had a new struggle and a new battle um, to conquer uh, as the series went on. Like I definitely came into the season probably in the best shape and best form I've ever been in. Um, after moving back to Australia from Canada and in 2017, I used to live in Vancouver, BC, Canada, up until 2017. Then moved back to Wollongong, Australia, full time or permanently. Um, so it was a bit of an adjustment period through, you know, 2017, 2018. We had a lot of component changes in our team, giant factory off-road team, a major suspension change. And then in 2019, we had another major suspension change to Fox suspension. So coming into the season this year, that was quite a late change. We didn't change that until early March. Um, and the first two rounds were in Rotorua, New Zealand and Derby, Tasmania, Australia. So you know, we only had a couple of weeks to kind of figure that out. And, uh, you know, Fox comes out of the box. Fox suspension comes out of the box as quite a quite a good solid package straight away. So you can't really go too wrong. It was just a fine tuning for race suspension and, and getting it used to kind of race speeds and, and race uh, situations that we weren't quite prepared for or ready for. So that took quite a long time to get sorted. Um, it was quite a few. Was that the... Like a problem or a challenge for the entire giant team or just you specifically? Uh, I think it was a challenge for the entire team, yeah. We didn't. We kind of got it uh, like reasonably late at our team camp um, and then the whole team just went racing straight away. So usually in January, you spend January, February um, really dialing in your suspension and you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours <laughs> riding that bike and riding that platform. So by the time you come to racing – you know, you you might get a new bike, but it's just fine tuning little things and uh, showing up to a race, and you know how to adjust your compression here or there according to the conditions, and you're quite intimate with with all of that because of how many hours you've spent on that, that platform or that bike or that setup. Um, so we didn't quite have that intimacy for the whole team coming into the season, which kind of put us on the back foot a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, a few few weird things happened along the way. The day before the race in, in Rotorua, we were practicing one of the stages. And just at the end of the stage, practicing one of the stages in the morning, 
and then we had to practice um, another stage in the afternoon. And in the morning, we come out of the trees at the very end of the stage towards the finish line. Um, and in the cut, freshly mown grass, uh, there was about a four to five inch high tree stump that was hidden in the grass. And within the space of about 15 minutes, um, there must have been about 20 dudes that crashed on this tree stump because you couldn't see it at all. And the way the track was uh, bunted, it was bunted directly over this little area because it went into a bit of a natural double jump. Anyway, I've come out of the trees, just went to jump this double jump and clip the tree stump, spat my bike out from underneath me, landed, dislocated my shoulder. Um, So that definitely put a bit of a stress on the first round of the year. (laughs) Yeah, I imagine. Uh, that, That wasn't where your fellow giant rider... Paul Vanderplog, is that where he came off? Um, it's, uh, in practice at Rotorua, around that area, or uh, I wasn't in that particular area. He was in the in the Redwoods Forest. Um, yeah. I was in the main Skyline uh, bike park, so it was right in front of the whole show. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. you know, it was there was a whole list of people that didn't didn't get back up. Uh, another another Aussie. That's claimed twenty of you, basically, not just one rider, twenty of you. Oh, heaps of us, yeah. And like I was. I was lucky. There was about five people who didn't get up, and they had to go to hospital. And um, yeah, it was a bit of a gnarly scenario. So that was that was a huge stress coming into the first race of the year. We we managed to twenty. What did I managed twenty first, I think, or something. To be honest, I can't even remember. It's that long ago now. Twenty <laughs> something for the yeah. end of the year, but uh, any, come race day, it was a struggle. Any broken bones or just that one was broken bone. It was just a dislocation of the shoulder. So I was lucky that one of the giant New Zealand guys there was a physio for the um for a rugby team and he was uh he was pretty switched on and he kind of helped me just figure out figure it out and calm me down and and uh, get me racing again and it was okay to race it was just a little bit weak and sore um so yeah and i think another stress too was rotorua i was really really excited and frothing for that one but the next weekend was tasmania so we were going to race in derby so i was exceptionally excited about that and I was uh, yeah. more stressing about being injured and not being 100% racing in my in my home country. I think Derby's just been voted the number one circuit for this year's series, was it not? Yeah, got voted the number one tra- the trail of the year. So um, Kamagatsa to Aigan got named trail of the year by the Enduro World Series, which is pretty cool. Uh, I think yeah. the trail's up top, how fast it was, how fun it was. Um, just the whole layout of the trail itself was super appealing to a lot of the riders and and compared to the whole selection of trails that we had when we voted for it in Italy in finale at the end of the year um, you know that was by far a, a favorite amongst everybody and and uh, you can't gauge it off a trail that you'd happily go and ride again and happily go and race again and happily go and ride just for fun not just race so that one fitted ticked all the boxes and for Derby to take it out um, for the second time and you know second second EWS that uh, Second time at EWS was in Derby, and the second time they took out Trail of the Year was pretty rad, pretty awesome. And how did the, how did it work out with thousands of people and spectators? And I know if it's not a big place, Derby, in terms of um, population and the rest. How did it go in terms of infrastructure and you know getting getting food at the end of the day? And I know Rapid Ascent's considered doing events in Tasmania, and that's always been a a little concern. Is you know, the supporting infrastructure, pubs, accommodation and all the rest, restaurants, cafes. How was that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it really stepped up this year. They learned a lot from their first 
go at it in uh, 2017. So the 2019 edition was dramatically better. I missed the first edition in 2017 because my daughter was born um, the week of the race or the week before of the race. So um, I didn't get it. Your daughter was born like the week before before the race in 2017. Yeah. So I didn't, I was still in Canada at the time. So I didn't actually fly out here to Australia to make the race. Um, So this one was dramatically better. There's a lot more, there's a couple more restaurants there. I think the town prepared for it a little bit better. The accommodation in the town plus the town surrounding uh, were all ready for it. Um, And everyone seemed to have a really good time. There was a phenomenal amount of spectators on the side of the tracks um, all weekend. And every stage that you would come down, there'd be, you know, hundreds of people on the side of the trail yelling at you or, or screaming or having chainsaws or dressed up in minion suits or you know, the silent scream. It was pretty cool. It was really, really cool. And it was a- really getting behind it. And, of course, the Tasmanian government. Yeah, Tasmanian government for sure. Like it's really, it's really quite impressive to see what mountain biking has done for a small town like that. Like that was such a small, you know, reasonably non-existent town that had nothing else going on. And now it's just got a great community vibe. Everyone's behind mountain biking. There's a really cool feeling when you go down there and they've embraced um, the tourism side of it. The government's embraced mountain biking and the tourism side. And now Tasmania itself is its one of the, the hot destinations of Australia. So it's, it's pretty rad. And I think a lot of that's to do with mountain biking. Yes. Well, it sounds like now you can get on the ferry and make a weekend of it pretty easily. And, of course, always cheap flights to what would be the closest airport. Uh, Launceston or yeah, Launceston or even Hobart is in, is just a few hours away, and with Derby going on, and now Medina's really really charging ahead. There's two dr- quite dramatically different riding zones. So uh, whether you're coming out of Melbourne or Sydney or or Adelaide or Perth, I think there's a direct flight from Perth even now. Um, you know, you can you can get down to Tassie reasonably easy, including the ferry, and you've got a huge variety. There's some trails popping up out outside of Hobart on Meehan Range. Uh, there's St. Helens, which is about to explode in the next couple of years. So it's really becoming a, a mountain bike destination. And, um, you know, instead of flying to New Zealand or flying to Whistler or or so on, you could pretty much fly down to Tasmania and get almost the same feeling and the same stoke, which is rad. And I guess it helps as well with the enduro format, which has proven to be hugely popular. I think it started in 2013. Do you want to, just for the sake of listeners who may not know the or be familiar with the format. Do you want to take us through or give us a summary of the enduro format and how that differs from downhill and cross country? And yeah, so cross country is your kind of general format where it's a one to two to four hour constant race. So once you go across the start line, you're on the gas until you know you finish your multiple laps or four hours worth of time or or six hours. Downhill is just one timed downhill run. And you'll usually get a shuttle or a chairlift to the top of the hill. So enduro is um, you pedal to the top of the hill. So it's not timed, but you've got an, an allowed time to get there. So usually if it's an, a one-hour climb, you'll have about 45 to 50 minutes to get there. And you've got enough time to get to the top of the hill, have a drink, put your helmet back on, set your bike up, line up, take off. So then you're. That's not like we've got all day. You, there is actually a sort of a cutoff to get to these different points. Yeah, for sure. So, and you've got about on a one day format, you've got up to six individual stages to get to. So, you've got to climb and get to every stage throughout the day. And each stage has a start time. 
So you'll have a rollout time from the start event area and then you'll have a stage one start time. So that's when you have to be at the top of the hill. And then you, you race downhill, get to the bottom, and you'll have another amount of time and you'll have to get to the top of the hill again for your stage two start and then so on and so on and so on. So the, your downhill stages are accumulative and uh, that's what you're scored off at the end of the day and that's where the, the race results come from. So it's pretty much downhill that you have to pedal throughout the day. There is some pedaling in between on the stages. Um, over the years, the Enduro World Series has definitely evolved into a lot more lot more aggressive, pretty gnarly downhill races uh, with some short, punchy climbs in between. So it's usually about 80 to, I guess, almost 80 to 90% downhill and you know 10% punchy climbs and pedaling in between just on the stage. Still a definite need for fitness. Oh, huge, because they spend over about six hours. So usually a small enduro is about four hours long that you're out on the bike and out in the mountains, but usually it's about six hours that you, uh, from the time you leave, so say if you leave your the event area at about 10 o'clock, you won't usually come home or have your final stage till about 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and you'll come back to the pit area around 6 p.m. So with... um. With the liaisons, with the race stages, with the stops in between, it's it's quite a big day on the bike. So the fitness aspect is still hugely important. It's just a different type of fitness. So it's not quite the same as six hours on a road bike, for example, or or yeah. a, you know, a cross country enduro. Um, you've really got to be switched on mentally and have a have an extremely high fitness base um, to handle the load. Because it's not just one day either. Like the race may be one day, but if it's a one day race, then you usually have two days worth of practice in the lead up. And if it's a two-day race, then it's usually at least another two days worth of practice. So by the time you get to Sunday afternoon, you're on your fourth big day of riding, and yeah. uh, it's when you're at your your most fatigued, and it's when you really have to step up and and focus and pay attention, and um, you know be prepared for some really aggressive gnarly downhill. So you've got the it's a good a big combination of skills, I guess. You've got that athletic um uh, sort of agility side of downhill racing and you know um a fast response time and all the rest and then you've got that the big endurance engine of working at the other end uh, yeah. similar to the cross-country format so yeah, for sure plus the and the skill aspect and the the ability to read terrain is uh something that's it's quite shocking to a lot of people who go to an ews for the first time because a lot of the trails that we see here in australia that will when you go to a race you'll practice the trail and then when you show up for the, your race the next day, um, it's pretty much in the same condition. Whereas you, uh, during an EWS, those trails that you practice on Thursday, for example, by the time you get there on Saturday, it's dramatically different. It's like torn up, there's huge ruts, there's big berms, there's holes everywhere, there's rocks in places you didn't know rocks existed and it's it's really quite a uh, quite an alarming um sensation when you first do it for the first time so trying to deal with yeah. read lines as you see it is a really big skill component that um takes a bit of time to get used to like if you just drop in and send it on an, an enduro stage uh nine times out of ten you probably won't come out the, the bottom side of it <laughs> so um, it's definitely a an aspect and a skill set that is very specific to enduro and the enduro world series yeah. and um yeah pretty cool one I think that's why it's so highly regarded because it's it is requires a a really different skill set and a really specific skill set. So 
Do you have a preference for when you're going point to point after a downhill run? Do you have a preference for getting there as quickly as possible, or um, take it easy, sure. take a breath? Yeah, I definitely. I don't really like to slow down too much, just because you get like a little bit too chill, and you want to stay in that moment and stay keep your body kind of alert and ready and and um, sharp for the day. So I'll like come through the bottom of the stage, and usually you come through the bottom. Um, you'll do an interview with the media and and stuff like that. Then you carry on, take your goggles off, carry on, and just cruise your way out to just calm down and recover, um, and then just mosey on up the climb and and get her done you know you got to pay attention to eating throughout the day and your food and your hydration and there's quite a lot that goes into those one hour liaisons in between so it's not just as simple as a normal enduro where you can just rip your helmet off and have a have a talk and a drink and a chill and a laugh with your buddies that does happen but it's a lot more serious at a at a ewf you got to make sure your bike's okay make sure you're eating enough food to stay fueled up and ready and and you hydrate and um yeah there's quite a lot going on you're quite mentally and physically exhausted by the end of the weekend that's for sure that's a good segue into nutrition and fitness it's something we discuss on every episode with all the athletes that we that we interview what is your approach to fitness outside of mountain biking is there a lot of crossfit or do you hit the gym or you just stay on the bike yeah no there's definitely a lot of other other um different forms of training that I do. I, I do a lot of motocross riding, uh, a lot of road cycling, um, a lot of time in the gym. There'll be about oh, anywhere from four to six hours a week in the gym. Um, so you kind of you kind of mix it up and have a quite a varied program. The main focus of it and the main bulk of my week is spent on my mountain bike. Um, so you spend you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 or 15 to 20 hours a week on the mountain bike itself with a couple of big five-hour rides and a few other skill sessions in between, um, plus a couple of couple of gym sessions throughout the week, two, two to four gym sessions um, to kind of keep the body strong and together and, and uh, kind of nip up all those extra little pieces that just riding the bike doesn't pay attention to. You can ride your bike all day, but when you do those extra gym sessions on top, it just tightens everything up and keeps everything in check for um, – for those big days on the bike and helps you push just that little bit more than what you would by just riding a bike every day. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite a varied program for sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, intensive. Yeah. But definitely intensive during the summer and during your, your preseason training, it's usually between 25 to 30 hours a week worth of training total. Um, that's like all the bike time, the motocross, the gym, uh, yoga, all of the in between is around 30 hours for the week. Um, okay. Yeah, so it's quite a bit. And we must point out that this is a full-time gig for you, isn't it? You're sponsored by Giant. Does being a sponsored rider, does that include things like a base salary and those types of things, or are you getting by on sponsorship money? No, so I'm a yeah fully professional mountain bike rider for the Giant Factory Off-Road team. So uh, I'm salaried through them, get a base salary throughout the year, uh, well, for throughout my contract. So just coming off the end of a three-year contract with Giant and now moving forward, I uh, just just literally the last couple of days signed a deal with the Giant Factory Off-Road team for 2020 and 2021. Oh, excellent. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's pretty pretty nice That's- to get that one in the bag and it's a couple of new things that um, – Has that been announced publicly? Or? Uh, it won't be announced publicly just yet, but uh, it'll definitely be announced. The direction I'll be heading will be announced publicly 
closer towards the new year, if not in uh, the beginning of the new year. So there you well, go. There we go. That's exclusive yeah. to the RA podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I've been exclusive there, which is, uh, yeah, there's only a very small select few people who, who know what's happening for next year at the moment. So, um, All yeah, right. stay, tuned. stay tuned for that one. Oh, excellent work. I understand you got about, I think you were 18th overall for the series this year. Yep, so we ended up 18th for the series. Um, it was definitely a struggle to get through, like I said before, the, the start of the season was a bit of a struggle, but it kind of continued that way. We had a, a new prototype bike in, in Madeira that was a bit, bit of a last-minute inclusion around three, and that was quite difficult to set up. Um, and then we had another bike to ride and, and race in Lazor and Canizé for the middle part of the year. And then we had a new one again, uh, the brand new Rain 29er Advanced. We had that for Whistler and Northstar and Zermatt to finish the year. So that bike was was awesome. A great package. Had a um, had a really good feeling and I gelled really well with that bike for Whistler, which resulted in my best race of the year and really got me back on track and got me moving again to uh, try and finish the year strong. So I was sixth overall in Whistler with a third on the, on the Queen stage. That's the top of the world stage of Whistler. So it's about a 20... 21-minute stage from top of the world, Whistler, all the way down to the village. Um, and then, 20, yeah, 21 minutes. 21 minutes, yep. And it's uh, 21 minutes of the most aggressive trails you can find in the Whistler mountain bike park, <laughs> that's for sure. It's a, a little kid. bit different than Mount Buller where it's about two and a half minutes of riding. So yeah. 21 minutes of just flat out. Yeah, it's flat out. Yeah, it's flat out. It's, it's as rocky and chundery and high speed as you can get. So it's that was pretty wild. So, I yeah, imagine pretty much on the quads, so you must have been thanking yourself for all those gym sessions. Yeah, not kidding. That's one place where it really makes you realise how important the gym is, <laughs> doing all your push-ups, squats and, and all the above. Is there quite a strong bond between you and Sam Hill and some of the Aussie riders on the circuit, or do you stick to your, stick to yourselves? No, I think there's always a strong bond with other Aussies on the circuit because, um, you know, when you're in the middle of Portugal or France or Switzerland, um, it's pretty, and you're on the road for a while, it's pretty nice to chat to other Aussies. And not to mention, like Sam and I, we're pretty much we're the only two fully factory enduro Australian athletes on the circuit. Um, you know, Conor Fearon's been dabbling a little bit in the enduro scene and the EWS, and, and we all get on really well whenever we can. But um, there's a couple of really good Australian enduro riders that are coming coming through at the moment but it's it's really quite difficult for the Aussies to get there and make it happen without too much support um so yeah whenever you do see an Australian you're you're always stoked and you're always keen to just chat to them and, and help them out and especially if they're a privateer like um you you can understand how you understand how hard it is for a professional factory athlete to get through it so when you're over there doing it by yourself and you you're footing the bill out of your own pocket plus washing your bikes plus preparing them, changing tires, trying to get your sleep, trying to get stretched and recovered and ready and then wake up in the morning and do it all again. And it's really, really difficult, really, really difficult. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. It's always awesome and enjoyable to see a bunch of Australians together. And, um, yeah, and myself, we definitely chat, you know, a lot of the time whenever we, whenever we are riding throughout the day and we chat about motocross and our kids and a whole bunch of general general stuff so that's pretty that's pretty cool helps us take our mind off racing for a little bit and relax a bit and uh enjoy it i was gonna say it must be nice to just uh chat with some aussies and talk about something other than mountain biking like you talk yeah. about footy or, or 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. It sounds kind of funny when when you say that to a bunch of mountain bike riders um, that you kind of enjoy talking about things other than mountain biking. But you know, like I was yeah. saying, in that environment for that six hours, you're so switched on, and it's quite yeah. high high stress and high pressure, and there's a lot going on for just so for that short amount of time that you can chat about something different at, in a liaison to the next stage. It, it either just uh, takes the pressure off a little bit or helps you forget about a mistake you just made or if you just had a killer stage and you can get a bit ahead of yourself, it just brings you back to earth and, yeah, it's kind of nice. We had a pretty cool opportunity at the end of the year. There was the uh, the Trophy of Nations after Zermatt in the oh, yeah. Ligure in Italy and um, it was a race where we raced for our country, so we all raced for Australia So that, and you raced in teams of three. So there was Sam Hill, myself and Connor Fearon representing Australia and that was um, that was really, really cool because we all raced together which was an unusual format for enduro um and we're all like you know wheel to wheel flying down these stages and it was it was really a cool atmosphere and a cool cool uh cool event to just have a bit of fun at plus race really really hard together and see like what each of us do well what we're a little bit worse off at and see our our positives and negatives and, and weaknesses and strengths and it was awesome it was really really good fun yeah, it's a, quite a unique moment, I guess, on the on the circuit to be riding with a couple of your Aussie mates down, going flat out down the hill. So, <laughs> yeah, I know, Sam has won his third EWS in a row this year. Uh, what, what's he like as a as a person? Can you give us a little insight into into Sam Hill? Uh, Sam Hill is he's definitely a quiet, reserved person. Um, very chill and very relaxed about the whole thing and he handles the pressure exceptionally well better than anyone i've ever seen like the 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 championship this year came down to the final round uh on the final day and the final stage of the year like the last stage and sam pretty much had to win that stage to win the championship so there was a chance that if he didn't win that particular stage he might have won on a count back but that particular stage was the queen stage of Switzerland, which comes with an additional 40 points. So throughout the series this year, every round has had a queen stage, which means it's like the, the iconic stage of the weekend or the biggest stage of the weekend. And that one particular stage um, has an additional 40 points attached to it. So if you win that stage, you get an additional 40 points. But it's not like second, third, get 30, 20, 10, whatever. Only the winner gets it. So that particular weekend... Uh, everything was tied coming into it and the way the points sat with Sam Hill and Florian Nikolai, a French rider for Kenyan, he um, he was riding well. So it came down to that stage. So there, there couldn't be a more higher, high pressure situation than that. And, and Sam lined up to the top and strapped his helmet up and he sent it, won the stage, and that single-handedly won him the championship for the year. So that's... Um, yeah, wildly impressive and a true testament to the, the character and the type of person that he is. You know, he's, he's definitely been there and done that and done a lot of things in mountain biking around the world. And and um, it's pretty cool to see that at first hand and um, I guess to be there to witness such a cool experience. Are you guys similar in age? I think he's, you're... yeah, he's maybe a little bit older than I am, maybe a year or two. He might be 35, I think, 34. I'm too sure. It, it sounds like um, EWS is, like I know a lot of professional cyclists are sort of hitting their straps at 28, 29, and enduro, the format seems to be, 
don't know if a lifeline is the right word, but providing a lifeline to guys that are mid-30s and kind of want to pursue mountain biking as a full-time career. Would that be right? Yeah, a little bit. It tends to be sort of mid-20s, late-20s more so. Yeah, it's it's actually it's almost evolving to uh, it's it's like the skill builder. It's almost developing the athletes in a much better way than than downhill is at the moment. Downhill again is a super high pressure um, game of just hundreds of a second, uh, and the guys there are definitely a little bit younger than what they are in enduro. But it's, it's a completely different beast. Um, the enduro world, you've got to deal with a lot of stuff. There's a a lot of fitness, strength skill, um, mental abilities needed to get through the weekend and perform well. And um, so there's only a few guys now who have been able to do both, but there's quite a mix now. There's a a really young crowd of 21 to 25-year-olds that are coming through that are extremely fast and powerful. But the predominant age of us all is anywhere from 28 to 35 is majority of the field through the top 20. Um, Yes, it's, it's evolved to its own beast. I think at the start of the Enduro World Series 2013, 14, 15, it was still kind of finding its feet and it was like there was a bunch of downhillers coming across and a cross-country guys coming across and it was kind of seen as this um, kind of maybe leftover pool, you could say. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, maybe that offline, but now it's it's quite difficult to make it happen. So you've got to really commit a lot of time and, and energy to perform well and um, it's a whole other avenue of, of our sport and being a professional mountain bike rider. And, um, yeah, it's it's really, really lifted this year. I think the inclusion of the UCI um, to the Enduro World Series really helped the level step up. Um, the fact that Martin Mays, a young young dude from Belgium, Richie Rude yeah. from America, uh, Jesse Melamed was riding really well from, from Canada, and Flo Nikolai from France. Uh, everyone stepped up this year and was really laying it on the line. So, to perform well, you you had to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and be a hundred percent committed um, yeah. to make it happen. So it's not enough just to be good on the tour anymore, or good just to be part of a squad. You've got to be really, really good. Yeah, you've got to be exceptionally good for sure. And and the guys who are kind of wishing and washing between downhill or or cross country or just coming into enduro for one round, they weren't performing anymore. So the guys who were on it and fully committed and and making it happen, they were the guys who were performing. And all of a sudden, you make one little mistake and you're just, you're nowhere. So you, if you weren't 100% committed and you had your bike dialed, your body dialed, everything, your program dialed, um, it really showed on race day. And, uh, yeah, with the times that we had this year, I think we had almost three rounds that were separated by less than one second after 40 or so minutes of racing. Uh, and that's just, that's extraordinary. But the amount of stuff that that's we got phenomenal. going on, races and all the way the tracks have been deteriorating and you think about all those different trails and corners and jumps and rocks and blah blah and it comes down, it comes to, one down second. to one second yeah <laughs> insane so it's a formula one style like every second counts every half second millisecond every half second every yeah second counts every everything you're doing on that hill counts from as soon as you cross the start line to as soon as you cross the finish line so yeah it's definitely at a a world-class level at the moment and if you're going to be the enduro world champion then you are going to earn it the hardest way possible <laughs> yes well it's i guess it's it's hats off to guys like sam and yourself who get up there and place in the top 20 it's just remarkable so the one recurring theme i guess in this chat is pressure like 
we kind of look at your social media. You've got a really active social media platform on Instagram and some pretty awesome stories. It looks like you're just having a barrel of laughs 24-7, but we can't um, deny that there'd be a lot of pressure day to day. How do you handle that pressure? I know you've, you're married with a couple of kids. You have two kids, is that right? Or- yep, two kids. I've got a four-year-old son and a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of pressure there and a lot of expectation from your team and your sponsors and social media expectations and stuff like that. But I'm lucky enough to have a, an awesome, beautiful wife who helps me on that side of things. You know, like she helps me with the kids and, and brings me back down to earth and, and uh, yeah. realize that there's, there is more to life than just riding bikes. And it's, it, um, it's fun. It's my job and it's part of the game, part of the gig. And, uh, you know, you just, you just got to take it in your stride. You've got to handle it in your own certain ways and and uh, be mindful of what's going on around you and, and not stress the details. You know, there's, there's been a lot of stress going on this year, which I think has been quite detrimental to my performance. Um, outside of my physical performance, it's been a lot of stress-related um, poor performances throughout the season. Um, and you've just got to manage that in your own way, whether it's meditation, whether it's just chilling out and enjoying the moment or uh, talking to your kids while I'm traveling the world or just taking a breath and a moment to realize that you're, you know, you're shredding bikes under the Matterhorn in Switzerland. Yeah. So pretty insane. <laughs> yeah, put it in perspective. And, and uh, you know, I, have, I had my own goals and expectations for the 2019 season and, and had a bit of a rough year last year as well. Broke both my thumbs in in Whistler with a real big crash um, during the halfway point of the season. So I came out of that swinging, and I was ready for a redemption this year and ready to put it together and and to have the year that I had and to come away with 18th. Um, 18th is great, and like you just said, the top 20 in the world is nothing to be sneezed at, and and a yeah that I'm I'm very proud of and stoked of. At the same time, it's also a little bit bittersweet because it's. It's far from what I expected, and it's far from what I believe I'm I'm capable of. So it's it's kind of a hard one to deal with for sure. And what are your goals in terms? I know you've you've got a profile on Giant, and it says that your goal is top ten. Is that still your goal for 2020 in terms of the EWS circuit? Yeah, with the, with the goals that I got, uh, the goals and, and plans I got lined up for 2020, it's um, probably a little bit more aggressive than a top ten. It's more like a top five, top three, or to be the world champion. As we uh, as we're developing it into the into the future, um, but yeah, of course, it's it, my goal is to be the top ten at least. Um, I came out of the top ten in 2016 and 2017, 18, and now 2019 is in the bag. It's just it's been a bit of an uphill uphill battle since then. Uh, 2017, I guess it was my fault. I wasn't quite prepared. I was distracted with having a second baby, uh, moving back to Australia. I hurt my knee at the start of the year and just raced through it. So that was on me. Like I didn't have the preparation and and um, you know capabilities required to perform at that level. And then as the level lifted in 2018, I was ready and I was feeling great and riding well. Started the started the year in seventh in uh, South America and um, try to carry on carry on with it from there. And and uh, yeah, to finish that season with two broken thumbs and come away in 30 something overall, only with three or four races under my belt. Uh, that was quite disappointing. And then this year, again, you recover from that and you fix your, the pieces that weren't so crash hard and, and line all the dots back up and come out swinging. And it was just one battle after another, after another, after another. And, yeah, it was really, really a hard one to, to take on the chin <laughs> and to move forward and, yeah. and 
behind you and now staring at 2020 and I couldn't be more refreshed and excited and, and stoked to to put it all on the table and, and make it happen. Yeah, it's good. And you, you touched on, I guess it it speaks volumes about having, you know, the, the backup of a, of a wife and a couple of kids to inspire you and keep you going. So you, your family doesn't travel with you on the on the circuit during the year if they, they stay at home? No, no, they don't travel with me. They, they'll uh, We try and go back over to Canada because we lived there for six years and see all our family and friends over there. And and um, that's kind of one trip that we try and make happen with the kids and, and my wife. But other than that, it's as um, as glamorous and, and fun field it might seem on Instagram, which is definitely uh, part of the game. It's, it's There's a lot going on at these races. You know, you're you're awake quite early to get out there to get ready at the pits and then get your bike ready and practice and watch GoPro and stretch, recover, eat. Um, there's a lot going on and I'm, I'm there to do a job. I'm not there to, to hang out or, or be dad or be, be anything else, but a, uh, a mountain bike rider trying to beat everyone else there on the hill. So it uh, it would be lovely to have them there at the races, but at the same time, I'm not going to see them when I'm at the races. So they're just going to be stuck in a hotel room or doing the touristy things by themselves and traveling through Europe with uh, anyone who does have a couple of toddler kids that are four and two. It sounds like a bit of a nightmare when you buy yourself. <laughs> I would imagine. It sounds like it could be the case that you have a clearer head um, if they're not there. And if you're catching up on Skype at the end of the day, then uh, they can kind of recharge you for the, for the day to come. Yeah, and it just helps you switch off a little bit. Like, um, you know, majority of the time at the races, once you get there, uh, you you'll pay attention to a few of the riders. They you won't see much social media posting and interaction uh, from about Wednesday, Thursday through to the weekend. So a lot of us, or I in particular, turn my phone off apart from talking to my wife through the next practice days and race days to really focus on the job at hand and fo- focus on GoPro and and uh, just riding my bike and racing my bike. So, yeah, when you kind of finish watching your GoPro and you've done your stretching and your bike's ready and you chatted to your, your manager and your mechanic and, and you're ready for the next day, it's kind of nice just to switch off and if the time the time difference allows to chat to the wife and kids and and just see how their day was and, you know, switch off from mountain biking for a little bit and just enjoy enjoy chatting to them about life and, you know, what the kids drew on or what they did at preschool or you know, how much they rode their bike or crashed their bike or, <laughs> or whatever. So that's, yeah. that's, that's a nice aspect to help with the pressure and and uh, it's cool to, to have that that uh, relationship and and uh, someone else to share it with outside of just the mountain bike industry and your sponsors and, and social media. I guess a good segue um, to your childhood. So your kids, I imagine, are quite into mountain biking and bikes and all the rest and probably BMXs at this stage, are they? Yeah, yep. Yeah, Eli's uh, onto his 16-inch BMX cruising around, so he's pedaling around now with uh, training wheels flying around the car park and on the trails and getting used to the brakes and he's ready for <laughs> a, a bit of a crack to bring him back down to earth. <laughs> and then my two-year-old, oh, she's, yeah, two-year-old she's, back, she's on the pre-bike now and um, ripping around and loving it as well. So they love coming up the bush on the, the kids ride shotgun seat on my mountain bike. And, um, yeah, it's pretty fun. They really, really enjoy being out the bush and riding with me or riding their bikes with me. And yeah, it's pretty rad. It's cool to see. Well, it's good to see that sense of adventure rubbing off on your kids. How did it start for you? I know you're, you're a keen motocrosser. Was, was it motocross first? 
and then mountain bikes or yeah it was um i guess when i was a, when i was a kid i was you know always started riding push bikes from when i was two or three years old and and I think I bent or maybe snapped my training wheels off before my dad could actually take them off my my little BMX bike. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was always riding around the yard on a push bike from as soon as the sun come up to as soon as the sun went down, and riding to school, um, riding up the bush when I was younger. But motocross was the focus, so I'd ride push bikes just to train for motocross or have some fun, and then race motocross throughout my teenage years and tried to chase the professional motocross goals and dream. So we did that um, out of school and dad and I traveled around the country racing motocross and supercross um, all up and down the East Coast and, and over towards Melbourne and Adelaide and Geelong and stuff like that. And and then, yeah, 20, well, when was that? 2006, I kind of stopped racing motocross and um, 2007, I heard about this mountain biking thing and uh, went over to a local cross-country mountain bike race. Uh, with the Wollongong Mountain Bike Club, and just showed up with joggers and a, a pretty cheap, pretty cheap mountain bike, a five hundred dollar Diamondback Outlook Sport. It was at the time, and then uh, you know that I ended up winning that. A little bit different to your current setup. Okay, a little bit different to your current setup. A little bit different. Yeah, I do remember sitting on the start line of this race, had no idea what I was doing or what to expect. Absolutely no idea, and uh, lined up, and there was a bunch of guys on brand new bikes that. You know, at the time, someone had a, a brand new carbon NRS giant that was like eight thousand dollars, and a, another iron horse to my right, and it was just absolutely blew my mind. And I, I it was a world that I'd never heard of before, never seen before. And and uh, you know, at the time, if you had told me that I'd be sitting where I am right now with the career that I've I'm amongst and have had, um, I would have told you you were dreaming. <laughs> so. Yeah, just a local club cross country event. It was just um I just absolutely loved it. I uh ended up winning my category, the open man, I think I was second. You won, you won the category. <laughs> yeah, I won the category, had a huge crash, just riding way faster than the bike could handle and I think I was second overall for the weekend behind John Hardwick, the former editor of Mountain Bike in Australia magazine. Oh, and, right. Yeah, man, it just snowballed from there. Just met met some of the local club guys and they were kind of shocked at who I was and I was asking questions <laughs> who they were and what is this mountain biking thing and then uh, my wife now, girlfriend at the time, um, we drove home from there just eating a pack of shapes thinking, wow, that was pretty cool. <laughs> I wonder when we can do that again. <laughs> Next minute sponsored by Giant and all the rest. So you must have been a, a pretty serious motocross rider. If you're going to events interstate, then so you're riding nationals and at that level, were you sponsored as a motocross rider? Yeah, in uh, 2005, I was riding for a local bike shop here and had some support through Honda Australia. And in 2004 and 2003, I had support through Yamaha and, and, again, a local bike shop. And we were traveling around chasing the Australian Supercross Series and the Australian Motocross Series, plus the New South Wales Stadium Motocross, Supercross and Motocross. Um, so I was always top five, top three, uh, three, two, one and on the state stuff, the state motocross and supercross, and around the top 20 to top 15 in the national uh, motocross and supercross series so it was definitely a um a bit of a serious goal and it's, we chased it pretty hard and and traveled up and down the coast and raced in supercross races at the brisbane entertainment center and stadium motocrosses all around uh new south wales and tamworth and leeton um maitland down in canberra uh then in more supercrosses at the melbourne entertainment center and down there and 
um, yeah, that was the goal. And we're definitely chasing that pretty hard with some pretty decent support. And it got to the point in 2005, I had a, a bit of an accident on a supercross track and smashed my wrist to pieces. And it was, um, it was just a bit of a hard uh, scenario. So it was kind of like we had to commit to another deal with Honda and, and get rid of the bikes that we had. And I just broke my wrist again. And we'd already kind of funneled majority of our money from, from myself and my dad's business into chasing the dream. And then I was like, well, we have to 100%, 100% commit to this or kind of just pull the pin for a little bit, pay off our debt, pay off these bikes and just reassess what's going on. So at the time we reassessed what was going on. I went and was just a laborer and a landscaper for a, for a few months or a year or two before I uh, stepped into a landscaping apprenticeship and um, just reassessed what was happening. And then from then on, I had a few guest appearances at some stadium motocross events in New South Wales and was doing a lot of motocross coaching in 2006. Uh, and that's when mountain biking came up in 2007, like 2006, 2007, it just evolved into into a little bit more than just a bit of fun and bought myself a, a what I thought was a real bike. It was a giant Anthem in 2007 in the local giant shop. And then uh, that was actually the last bike I ever bought. So, All right. That sponsorship yeah. came not long after. Yeah, not long after that, uh, Giant Australia plus this local shop helped me out with with a, a bit of a deal for a racing cross country, and I started travelling around to the, the Australian um, cross country series in the under twenty or well, expert, and then um, under twenty three series. I think I only lasted two races in under twenty three. There was a race in Gold Coast, Queensland, that um, I think I lapped second place in the under twenty three category, and then the guys were like, "Look, you have to move up to elite. Like this is." this is not helping <laughs> and then yeah we we carried on from there so yeah i'm actually um with the big plow big paul vanderplow i've been racing against him pretty much majority of uh majority of my career in 2000 and what was that 2009 i think um i was chasing him down at my I got a third place in the australian cross-country championships and he was there racing as under 23 and on felt at the time and and i was chasing him down in adelaide and uh, there's a couple of cool photos of me and him at the finish line, kind of hugging each other and eating brownies, and um, yeah, pretty cool. So you guys are actually pretty good mates. Yeah, we are actually pretty good mates. We chat pretty regularly, and he was another one that I enjoyed seeing whenever we travel all around the world, and whenever I'd come back, whenever I do come back here uh, for the off season and preseason and the Australian summer, it's nice to go to a few events with him, and he rides with Giant Australia, so we try and link up as much as we can. We get on really well, and it's. Um, it's always a really fun, good time when we do get to hang out and ride together and race. And, and uh, I would yeah. actually love to see the conversation between you two boys because you're both pretty larger than life. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, not much room for a third person, that's for sure. When we, <laughs> we over the microphone, we've uh, taken over a few events on the commentary, and I think we we're accommodating uh, a crit race in Western Australia for the Cape to Cape one time, and Tony Tucknot was the main commentator, but. I was helping Tony and I got way too excited calling the race and then Paul got too excited because he wasn't quite on the front. So he pulled off, grabbed the Tony, grabbed uh, the microphone off Tony and then Paul and I took over the commentating <laughs> for the rest of the yeah. race. You're quite a funny guy, funny guy, Tony, as well. He's just uh, done – he just did our final Augusta Adventure Fest race over in Western Australia. I met him over there. So Happy I can day. imagine the three of you were quite hilarious. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, we uh, – we definitely have, have a good chemistry and uh, do love a microphone and, and do love a chat. So, yeah. <laughs> um, what, I guess, 
do you lament what could have been with motocross and supercross or is mountain biking just as lucrative now? Um, no, my, mountain biking's. I think a few years ago I kind of got over that motocross dream. It definitely, it kind of not ate at me, but it was a bit annoying for a little while. I wasn't really a, a big fan of watching motocross or supercross for a while there and living in Canada, it wasn't such a, such a high priority and high, um, you know, we weren't real, real worried about racing motocross or watching motocross over there. Of course, I watched the American Supercross and stuff like that. But the last few years, I brought myself a motocross bike again and and was able to enjoy it and uh, take it for what it is and let go of all that just crappy baggage from before. Um, and you've got to realize what I'm doing now is far greater than what I what I would have, would have achieved in motocross. You know, to get to get out of Australia racing motocross. Um, it's quite the achievement, and it's a very rare few people that um, that have done so. So, um, yeah. yeah, the fact that I've been racing around the world now since uh, 2013, I lived in Canada for six years, and you got pink dress. It's uh, it was pretty pretty cool to realize what I was doing with motocross, uh, what I was doing with mountain bikes compared to that. So that helped me get over that little. Not necessarily grudge, but that little thing that I had for a few years there, and uh, it helped me enjoy, I guess, my profession and my life a lot more. Because yeah, man, what I'm doing right now is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's really, yeah, really awesome. I, I, I can't argue with you there. It's just watching your social media each day, but um, so the broken wrist. Would you describe that as your biggest challenge so far? No, that that sucked, but it was um, as weird as it is to say, it was just a broken wrist at the time. Um, you know, in 20, 2013, um, there's, there's been a couple of injuries over the years, but 2013, uh, we started the Enduro World Series in Punta Alley in Italy at the first round, and I was a full-on unknown nobody. Um, so showed up there. I had a, had a bunch of racing in North America in 2012, um, which I had, had done pretty well, and then, um, showed up to the world scene and racing in Italy and it was uh, just a whole new world. I was kind of arguing with the with the directors at the time about trying to move me up the start order so I didn't have to start in the 80s. I could try and start in the 20s and blah, blah, blah. And they were like, well, we don't know who you are, so I'm sorry, but you're going to have to just figure it out. And So I ended up not, um, what was I, 10th or 9th there at the first ever EWS and then went to France the next round and uh, had a bit of a dodgy race and didn't quite adapt well to the french conditions so i come out of the first day in 29th woke up on day two just with just oh, so grumpy and angry and keen to just redeem myself and uh ended up sending it off one of the trails that uh as i came down the side of the hill i could see the trail pop down the other side of the of the grassy hill and uh was like in a bit of a speed tuck going for it but just at the last second the trail turned and went around because the avalanche had taken the trail out throughout the winter so i've come around and there's a big tree stump jumped the tree stump and there was about a 15 20 foot drop on the other side into a just a lounge room sized area full of microwaves um so that that was pretty gnarly that was super gnarly that shattered that pretty much destroyed the left side of my body i broke snapped a few ribs in half um shattered my elbow, pushed my shoulder out the back of my shoulder socket and destroyed and smashed all that. And uh, I thought I broke my leg at the time, but I just bruised a bone really, really bad. Um, so that was pretty gnarly. 
that was a couple of weeks in a French hospital and and a bit of a gnarly procedure to get my elbow working again and bolted back together and and uh, and yeah, that was that was pretty up there. That was a big one. <laughs> that was a big one to say the least. Didn't slow me down too much, but it um it definitely hurt at the time. Yeah, it sounds that sounds very nasty. So a couple of weeks just in hospital recovering. Yeah, it took like rehab and all the rest. Um, yeah, I was. I had to stay in France for about ten days, I think, before I could fly home. Just to let all the swelling go down and make sure there was no infection before I could get back to Vancouver. And our Swanier at the time was, uh, man, she was an absolute angel. She could speak French, so she stayed with me in the hospital to make sure that you know I got everything that I needed and everything was okay. And she could translate to the to the um, to the doctors for me. So she slept on the floor and, and waited there with me while I was all strapped up and bandaged up and she would get me some real food instead of eating the weird fish hospital food that would serve me. And she'd get me out in the sunshine every for a little bit every day for as much as I could walk. Um, but, yeah, that was that was pretty gnarly to say the least. I imagine it's a pretty intimidating place, a French hospital. So Yeah, I mean, the, the hospital that I got taken to first, they didn't have the equipment to really check how broken my left side was. So then I got put in a in the back of an ambulance on a neck board and a, a, a neck brace and a backboard for another oh, at the time I can't remember how long it was, but apparently it was about two hours to get to the next town uh, so I could get checked out properly and and then the procedure started to um, you know figure out how broken my elbow was and and what was going on. So yeah, it was it was wild. I had a big gash on my forearm from something, and at the time all I could see was blood all over my pants and blood all down my arm and. My elbow was all funny and floppy, and my shoulder wasn't in its place. So, yeah, it was it was a real probably ground a few years worth of teeth away getting off the mountain there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good segue to the next question. Do you consider yourself a madman, if I might say? Uh, no, I don't or think so. Calculated risk, given that you guys have done this a thousand times, you've ridden down these mountains. Yeah, what sort of speeds are you getting at down these mountains? Oh, well, well over 50, 60 kilometres an hour, sometimes closer to 80 kilometres an hour. I think in Whistler this year we hit um, uh, 80, 80 point something kilometres an hour. 80 kilometres an hour. So yeah. that, the margin for error is virtually non-existent. Like if oh, you make an error at that speed. No, nah, not at all. Yeah, and a lot of places you ride, you don't, you don't really pay attention at the time, obviously, but later you look at GoPro, you see your, your uh, you know helmet cam footage and there's some holes that you jump that um, when you're side hilling around a pretty sizable mountain, you can see sky below your wheels <laughs> when you jump off the ground. So, um, yeah, it's pretty gnarly. It's pretty wild for sure. And, and uh, there was a couple of locations in North Star in California this year, uh, Zermatt in Switzerland, um, and even some of the bits in Madeira in Portugal. Like there is zero room for error. Like if you do go down – you know, you're not getting back up. Um, there was a couple of guys that did did go down, unfortunately, and they ended up with some pretty serious injuries. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't consider myself a madman. It's definitely it's a bit of a wild sport when you break it down and see what we have to do. But um, at the end of the day, you're, you're still a professional athlete, and uh, that's what we do every day. Like, everything I do every day is to ride my mountain bike as fast and the best that I can to be uh, one of the best in the world. So. It's all calculated and planned, and you do you do everything you can to to be on top of that. Um, yeah, and I guess when when she hits a fan, she hits a fan in a big way. 
Yeah, so it's a few definitely calculated risk, and all your preparation makes it kind of makes it normal, I guess. Would you say it's it's does it feel normal when you're hurtling down the hill at 70, 80k an hour? Yeah, it feels awesome. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> that that feeling is, uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't know how else. I haven't actually skydived, um, but it's when you come down a race run and and down a stage or a race stage or down the side of the mountain and and you're flying and you're you're on the gas and everything's just smooth and quiet and calm and you're just in this zone that feels amazing it's um yeah it's not fear it's not like you're not it's not necessarily adrenaline or you're just you're just doing everything that comes to you naturally and you're just going with it and it's um it's probably the feeling that brings us all coming back for more and and uh you know when you when you do put it all together and you come down the bottom of the hill and you see your times the faster than than anybody else or within the top five of the world and man it's it's an addictive feeling and um it's the feeling that we all chase every every stage and i guess every day of the year <laughs> yeah it's interesting that you say that because i know paul vanderplug he alluded to that feeling on the single tracks um and I know he's had a crack at the EWS format as well. He's quite active on the enduro circuit. I think at a at a national level. So yeah, it's definitely yeah. Um, it's a feeling that's uh, that's pretty up there. And I guess now that the levels lifted so much to to get that performance and get that result, um, it really takes a lot of effort. So when you do when you do get that performance and that result now, and you do put it all together, it's it's no easy feat and. Uh, you know, it's it's hours and hours of hard work and determination and commitment to uh, to make that happen. And when when you when you're not 100 percent committed, you can see it in the race results. When you when you're like all of a sudden you catch yourself thinking about things or your mind's not 100 percent on the job, then your race times usually reflect that. Um, something that's actually uh, when you race from March through to October, um, it's something that's quite hard to really get back in the swing of when you come back to race in Australia through the summer. Um, so a lot of the racing that we do here in the summer is all predominantly fun-based and, and uh, enjoyable, which is kind of weird and funny to, to, to say, but when you go away to race an EWS event or an international race, it's, um, it takes on a whole new vibe and mentality and feeling and a whole new level of commitment. So, it's um, yeah, it's a feeling that's addictive to say the least. <laughs> Yeah, that's why you love it. That's why you do it. So yeah, it's great to see yeah. someone that's pursuing their passion. Who do you look up to outside mountain biking for inspiration? Um, I guess I looked up to, uh, I don't know if I, could, if I could say I look up to any one in particular person, but you gain inspiration and, and motivation from a whole bunch of people from all different different avenues of sport, like the cyclists and the the obviously mountain bike riders a lot of a lot of motocross riders i follow a lot of a lot of those guys and and uh, draw inspiration from them um even guys like the crossfit guys like the commitment that they have to have throughout the season and and um bodybuilders for example you know bodybuilders get a bit of a bad rap for being a bit wanky but the the dedication and commitment they need to 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 look like that and perform is unbelievable it's a whole another level of ocd and addiction and commitment yeah uh, that's that's uh that's intriguing to me and motivating for me um to see the level that they push to and 
and uh, the, like the CrossFit guys to see how much training they have to put in to, to be the fittest dude or the fittest chick in the in the world is absolutely unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, I guess I draw inspiration and motivation from a bunch of different sports around the place and, and uh, my family, my wife, my kids, they all fuel me and inspire me every day to, to push a little bit harder and you're doing it for more than just yourself now and you're not just doing it for you and your team, you're doing it for them and, and uh, you know, to make people, make your family proud and make your hometown proud. We've been done, doing a lot of work here in Wollongong to try and legalise mountain bike riding and the Road Cycling World Championships are coming here in 2022. So there's a lot of hype and a lot of people who are getting involved with cycling and mountain bike riding and, and starting to uh, hear about what I'm doing around the world and, and my achievements and aspirations. So it's, it's pretty cool to have their support. And, it, and, and again, it breathes another level of um, motivation for me to perform for them and, and you know, make yeah. it... Uh, you know, you're proud of proud of from Wollongong and proud of what your family's got going on, and there's a lot going on. Yeah, it's it, so you, it seems like you're carrying the torch basically for the mountain bike industry. Is there anyone that you that you look up to in the mountain bike world in particular? Um, oh man, there's heaps of people that I look up to in the mountain bike world for sure, and and uh, you see guys that have been through ups and downs, like Brendan Johnston from. Uh, from Canberra, like cross country rider, like the just his story alone yeah. is inspirational. And and Paul Vandy, you know, he's another one who's got a very inspiring, motivating story from from the achievements that he's made and the way that he's come back from a broken leg and still racing. Um, Sam, um, his achievements, a lot of the uh, a lot of the the European mountain bike guys that. Uh, have raced back in the day and pioneered the sport, like the level of commitment from guys like Nico Vuyo and, and Aaron Gwynn and, and uh, Greg Minar. Greg Minar still continues to perform and the way that he pulls it out of the bag week in, week out on the downhill World Cup circuit against everybody is is uh, massively inspiring. And then, again, guys like Chad Reed. Chad Reed's on a bit of a funny program at the moment in the motocross world, but he's uh, still making it happen. He's still top 10 in the world and still performing and competing against everybody there is in the world and, and still making it happen. So, um, you know, there's, there's inspiration and motivation everywhere you look and, and it's, uh, it, it all fuels you to perform and be better every day. Yeah, Chad, Chad Red in particular, the, the stuff he has done for, for motocross in, or supercross in America is just incredible. Like if, if that were a mainstream sport, he'd be one of our best athletes of all time. Well, he is. Oh, Sure. Yeah, for sure. It's, it would uh, it'd be amazing, <laughs> you know. Even if if mountain bike was a mainstream sport, and and Sam got the recognition for what he's done for yeah, mountain bike yeah. all over the world, and and uh, especially in Australia, it would be it'd be amazing to see. You know, you consider if he's the world champion of of enduro mountain biking, and he's the you know the number one dude who plays uh soccer or football or uh whatever other mainstream sport out there is a huge disparity between the two and, and exposure and salary and blah 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 so all that kind of jazz so who knows it's getting bigger mountain bike is growing at a rapid rate here in australia i think the e-bike scene is definitely helping propel that and give a broader range to people um all around the world to get into mountain bikes and then now uh we're seeing that the e-bike scene has is opening up a whole new uh, pathway of mountain bike riding that uh, a lot of us haven't actually explored or seen yet which is cool yeah that was uh, the next question if 
I mean, the future of mountain biking in Australia, you see the path of e-bikes, you see that category getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I know there's a huge amount of growth with the, um, you know, the trends towards green energy and all the rest and inner-city yeah. developments and their e-bikes, but also e-bikes and mountain biking as well, a lot of yeah. growth. I think there's a bit of a funny perception about e-bikes at the moment and, and from a racing point of view, like it got showcased as a bit of a cross-country format at the Monsanto and World Championships this year. Um, but they lend themselves a lot more to enduro and the and the the stuff that you can do on an e-bike is dramatically different to a normal enduro bike, for example. So you can get up climbs that are almost too steep for a cross-country bike and technical for a cross-country bike to get up, but then still descend down trails that a downhill bike would go down. So it's a whole new range of mountain bike riding and style of it. Um, and I think it's just it'll naturally evolve to that, especially in this next 12 months especially now the EWSE has started a, an e-bike enduro world series. Um, you'll see it evolve towards that direction. It'll be a little bit different for now while the technology catches up and, and comes more to the forefront and, and uh, it's a little bit more streamlined and smaller. The bikes are a little bit big right now and a little bit limited to what they, what their potential actually is, but they're, they're evolving faster than anyone can keep up. So, it's definitely an avenue that will grow here in Australia, and Australia lends itself to e-biking for sure, especially here in Wollongong with how steep it is around the place and the trails you can link together. And places like Mount Buller have a fantastic zone and, and mountain bike network that was, uh, you know, it's almost like it was made for e-bikes up there with the altitude and the steep little climbs and the way you can get around the mountain. Um, Tasmania has a, a awesome uh, plan for e-bikes down there, especially in Maydina Bike Park. They're going to be incorporating e-bikes into their program down there a lot more and they've uh with myself and and the guys from the bike park we've made a bit of an e-bike specific course for the national championships uh next week down there so that'll be a pretty cool showcase of what an e-bike actually can do and uh what they're capable of um so yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that grows and develops and i think you'll see it a lot more in the next couple of years and a lot of people's perception Will start to change a lot more over the next couple of years. It won't be so ego driven and, and uh, you know, yeah. like oh, people are cheater for not getting up the hill on a normal pedal bike. It's it's just a different uh, it's just a different form of mountain bike riding. Some guys like riding a cross country hardtail. Some guys like riding a, a enduro enduro bike up and down the hills. So this is just another form of mountain bike riding. Yeah, it's definitely a growing category for Rapid Ascent as well. We can see it at our events, Otway Odyssey, Bike Buller, and the Redback as well. That category is just getting bigger and bigger. We had quite a few at the Redback this year in comparison to other years. And I know we've, we make um, quite an effort, I guess, to promote our e-bike category at Bike Buller, and that will be happening again in 2020 as well. So, Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty cool to see, to see like big companies get on board with it and, and promote it at their races and and uh you know i think it's it's got a it's got a bit of an attitude on got a bit of a um perception at the moment that it's for the older guys and it does help them continue their cycling career and mountain biking and helps them along and and i think it'll evolve too that everyone like even the younger dudes and the guys who want to shred and and enjoy the ride it'll evolve to them as well and it'll showcase that uh it's for everybody across the board and it just opens up a broad range and it's not going to replace the enduro bike of course um but it'll just be 
you know, another bike that you have to argue with someone that you need in the shed. What is it, N plus two or something? Or yeah. What is it, you need plus two extra bikes. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it's an exciting exciting time for the whole e-bike uh, space and uh, I think you'll see it grow a lot more in the next uh, next 12 months. And just have to be try, try not to be angry when you see one riding past you. Just realise that's an e-bike. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like the anger and, you know, I see it here riding at home. I'm riding up the hill on an e-bike and guys will call me a cheater and, whatever but uh yeah it's, it's quite a funny scenario <laughs> all the time no, they're walking there to go to a trail and i've just uh ridden past after doing 2500 meters of descending so yeah, <laughs> i'm pretty happy if that's what cheating looks like <laughs> yeah so e-bike a definite um growth area for mountain biking and it touches on the future of mountain biking i guess for you what about the future for josh carlson so You've got you've signed a two two year deal, um, with Giants. Um, You're pretty busy. Um, yeah, I guess we'll uh, the the future plans for 2020 and beyond will will get released in the next uh, next few weeks or next month or so, um, over Christmas kind of thing. And in the early parts of the new year, you'll you'll hear a lot more uh, solidified plans for for what I'm doing in the next next couple of years. It's definitely focused around the EWS and the world series and still traveling the world and chasing the dream of, of being a world champion and, and winning, uh, all around the place. Uh, for the meantime, the, the initial, uh, focus and plan for me is next, uh, next weekend on the 22nd, 3rd and 4th of November, I'll be down in Medina for the national enduro championships. But, uh, for this year in particular, I'm racing the e-bike category on that, on that specific course we just mentioned. So I'm going to head down there on my new giant rain E and, um, have a crack at the e-bike national championships and uh, see how that shakes down and see if we can get a bunch of people involved and, and come out and have some fun for that event. Um, and then moving forward, uh, get through the summer. Fingers crossed I'll be at Bike Buller for 2020, still trying to finalize those plans that I just mentioned right now and, and make sure that I can spend a little bit more time in Australia at the, the early part of the season. Yeah, we um, hope to see you at that, that's for sure. Yeah, and then uh, – yeah, so I guess the the full on plans for twenty twenty is uh, a work in progress. So stay tuned. Yep. And we've uh, we should um, announce that we have a special discount code for those wanting entries are now open for Bike Buller twenty twenty, which is organised by Rapid Ascent. Uh, we've got a ten percent discount for anyone listening today who wants to enter Bike Buller twenty twenty. Uh, so the the discount code is JC Bike Buller. So J for Josh. C for Carlson, Bike Buller, and you get yourself 10% off Bike Buller 2020. So, uh, Josh, we've been chatting for about an hour. It's, it feels like we could just keep on chatting about the nuances of mountain bike and what inspires you and the rest. One thing that did strike me when I met you at Bike Buller in 2019, it was um, your sense of adventure, but you're also – a role model for for young young kids coming coming through. There was a lot of 15, 16 year olds at Bike Buller 2019 that were just I could see they were just looking up to you. You know, you were kind of the place they wanted to be. I guess 10 years forward. So, any advice for young mountain bikers out there that might want to pursue mountain biking as a career? Oh, that uh, that that means a lot. I, I appreciate that a lot, and um, I, I I try and make a big effort when I am at the Australian races. You know, I haven't haven't been racing too much in Australia over the last few years because I've been living in Canada and 
and when I do get to come home for the summer, I'm home for the summer in the preseason before the the uh, world the World Series kicks off, and I start traveling around to Europe and and that kind of thing. I try and make the most of my time when I'm and I'm at when I'm at an event like Bike Baller, and to see so many people there racing and and um, you know for those kids to see see myself or see Sam or see Connor or uh, you know some of the other professional mountain bike riders who do live in Australia and are professional. Um, it is pretty cool for them to know that it is possible. So it's not impossible. You don't you don't have to. It's not just the impossible dream. You know, you can be a professional mountain bike rider based on Australia. We have some some of the best mountain bike riders in the world who are from Australia here. Best road cyclists, mountain bike riders. Uh, you name it, we've got it. So it's cool. Um, cool to see some of the young frothers out there who have those aspirations and they're willing to put in the work. You know, the the advice that I would give is is um, if you really want it, you know, put the work in to make it happen. I've been told numerous times uh, in my life or career that, uh, you know, maybe this isn't for you or maybe, you know, there's only so many people who can make this uh, mountain biking thing or motocross thing a, a job. So, you know, maybe you need to pull your head out of the clouds and, and realize that that's not your, it's not your thing. And, uh, you know, there's no more drive than someone telling you that you can't do something. <laughs> drives you more um but it does take a lot of hard work it does take a lot of preparation and uh it takes a level of professionalism that is quite overlooked i think a lot of the times um you've got to pay attention to the small details and and realize that you are an ambassador and a, a representative of every company that you work for or ride for or or represent and uh i try and line myself up with the companies that are, have similar goals and aspirations to mine and and companies that i'm proud to to work with and proud to represent like any company that I do endorse or, or ride for is, is people that, uh, you know, would be more than happy to go and have a coffee with or a beer with just in general outside of, of work and being a professional. So, so uh, paying attention to that and being, uh, being on top of, of your image and your work and, and, uh, everything in between. There's a lot that goes into being a professional mountain bike rider and, uh, it is definitely possible to do that from here in Australia. There's some great events out there. There's great racing. There's great terrain. Uh, mountain biking in Australia is in a really great spot right now, and I think it's it's growing and one of the fastest growing sports um, around. So um, yeah, it's super cool. I thank everybody for coming up and saying hello when I am at the races and and just having a chat. Um, I really enjoy meeting um, as many people as I can at the events and chatting to you all and talking about. Uh, what I've been up to or what you're up to or, or where we're going. So it's um, it's really, really cool to share my experiences with, with a whole bunch of people here in Australia in particular. And uh, if, uh, if there is any advice or any inspiration I can, can give to a bunch of young frothers or people at the track or just people getting into mountain bike riding in general or, or having a bit of fun, and then I'd be more than happy to do so. So thank you guys and, uh, yeah. Hope to see you at Bike Buller in 2020 or at Trailside soon. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. So regardless of your situation, go after it. And regardless of what people tell you in terms of, you know, there's only X amount of roles in the supercross, motocross, downhill, these niche sports, go after it anyway. Yeah, if, if that's what you want and that's what you you believe in and you've got some support and and uh, you you fully believe that you can do it, if you believe it, then you can do it. <laughs> you know, it's uh, no one else is going to tell you that you can or can't do it. But if you believe that you can do it, then uh, have a crack. You'll only find out um, 
you'll never never know if you never never go. So uh, you're right. <laughs> you just uh, you never know. All right, Josh, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for your honesty and uh, your advice at the end there. I think that's brilliant. There'll be a lot of young kids listening in. So, yeah, we've had a lot of runners and it's good to – a lot of runners, adventure races and whatnot so far. So great to hear some words of wisdom from someone who's on the Enduro World Circuit. Um, I know it's – is it off-season now for you? Uh, we're just about to tick over into the, into the pre-season, so – uh, I came home from – we had raced in Zermatt, raced in Finale, then I had another e-bike race in Virazi in Italy uh, early October. So I've been home now since mid-October, about the 10th I think I got home. So had a bit of a break until now. And then now I'll start to, uh, start to ramp back up my training for the next couple of weeks and attend that national championship. Um, and then once December rolls around, it'll be back into – really putting in some some big hours on the bike and the gym on the motocross bike and and uh start preparing for for uh the biggest 2020 yet uh, good we wish you all the best for 2020 and i'm guessing now you probably have to get out and do a, a gym session or a training run or something this afternoon what's on for today for you yes yeah, so i was um about 90 k's on the roadie this morning over three hours or a little, little less than three hours this morning so that was a nice uh Firm, fast, roadie to start the day, and then uh, now it'll be time for a bit of lunch, and then get out on the mountain bike this afternoon for another three hours um, up in the bush with some downhill runs and uh, just some some skill based sessions, and then uh, yeah, pretty much the same deal tomorrow. Another short, hard, fast road ride in the morning, uh, another big mountain bike ride in the afternoon, and then uh, that'll take me into a bigger five hour day on the mountain bike on Thursday. And then uh, a bit of a chill day Friday before a big weekend, another another big weekend on the mountain bike and the motocross bike on the weekend. Well, there you go. An- another insight into the life of a professional mountain biker. Just a casual three-hour 90Ks on the road bike this morning. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's not too, not, a, not too bad of a way to start the day. And you kind of leave it, leave it about 5, 5.30. You're home by, you know, quick coffee at 8. You're home by 8.30 to uh, hang out with the kids and the missus and get the day started. and then. Uh, get to chill out with a little bit throughout the day before going out again in the afternoon and getting her done before time. It's, it's a fascinating insight, and thanks for your time today, Josh. We'll, we'll let you get to it. Um, hope to see you at Bike Bull in 2020, as we said, and all the best for 2020 as well. Thanks so much for your time today. No worries, mate. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, appreciate everybody who's tuned in and, and listened. And if you did give us uh, if you did give us a listen today, then... Let me know the next time I see you and love to hear your feedback. Thank you. I guess that discount, ago, discount code again, uh, JC Bike Buller. So J for Josh, C for Carlson, JC Bike Buller. Get yourself 10% off for Bike Buller 2020. Josh Carlson, thanks for being on Episode 7 of the Rapid Asset Podcast. Thanks, mate. Cheers.